Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Six Feet Apart. I'm Alex Wagner. The pandemic has upended life as we know it. And yet some systems, healthcare, transportation, the food supply chain, they found a way to go on because, quite simply, they didn't have a choice. The criminal justice system is one of those essential institutions that has been forced to grapple with the outbreak of COVID-19 and chart a course around it, or more specifically, through it. And our criminal justice system, in particular, is faced with the greatest challenge of them all. That's because America locks more people up than any other country in the world. By a lot. With all of our trials and prosecutions and sentences, with our abundance of crowded prisons and tightly packed cells, how do you protect, isolate, quarantine, and otherwise slow the heavy, rolling machinery of the American justice system? That's what we're going to talk about today. Justice. What happens when criminal and civil trials are basically put on ice? How do you protect law enforcement and also keep the public safe from six feet away? And how do you stay healthy and alive in prison? First, we're going to speak with the new district attorney of San Francisco, Chesa Boudin. Chesa, a former public defender whose father has been in jail for close to Chesa's entire life, was elected on a progressive platform and sworn into office five months ago. Ending the era of mass incarceration helped get him elected, but no one had any idea that a major release of prisoners would come as the result of a pandemic. And then we'll speak to Mary Beth Hill, an inmate at a federal prison in Greenville, Illinois. Mary Beth was sentenced to 36 months in prison for the sale of narcotics. Because she's a nonviolent offender, she was cleared earlier this month for release with the goal of having her serve out the rest of her sentence from home, with monitoring. But as of now, Mary Beth is still incarcerated, and COVID-19 is still infecting people. But first, here's Chesa Boudin. So, Chesa, one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in knowing from people who are working in government and, in your case, criminal justice particularly, is how the magnitude of this pandemic first started dawning on you. At what point did you realize, OK, we're going to have a serious problem in the prison system? We're going to need to make serious moves to assist that population. I mean, your father is incarcerated, so I would imagine that moment maybe came before, or did it come after or simultaneous? No, it was simultaneous. I mean, Alex, one of the things that I bring with me to the job of district attorney every day is an intimate and and lifelong connection to our country's system of jails and prisons because I've been visiting my parents in prison my whole life. My earliest memories are going through steel gates and metal detectors just to be able to give them a hug. My father's now been in prison for more than 38 years. So it's been part of my life every single day that I can remember. And Um, Whenever there's uh, a a major issue, whether, you know, it be obviously COVID-19 is is unprecedented in our lifetime, but um, 
you know, any major public health issue, one of the things I always think about is people who are vulnerable, whether they're incarcerated, whether they're unhoused, um, obviously victims of crime. And, um, you know, my father is now 75 years old. He's got underlying medical conditions. And when he was first transferred to the prison he's currently housed in, they didn't have a single doctor on staff. Um, and so the, the kinds of things that we've all been trying to implement in our own life, in our own space and, and, and daily routines, um, social distancing, hand sanitizer, uh, good hygiene, um, access to doctors when, when we have any symptoms, those are impossible for my father. And for virtually all of the other 2.3 million people in this country who are behind bars on any given day. There's been a wave of district attorneys across the country, not just in blue states, but in states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania and Utah, who have recommended getting shrinking jail populations, shrinking prison populations because of the the threat that COVID-19 poses. How have you looked at this moment in terms of our prison population and how permanent do you think the reduction in these numbers could be? When I took office in January of this year, mid-January, January 21st, the jail population was 1,238 people. This morning, it was 701. So about a 50, roughly 55% drop. And Um, how how much of that drop was in the last month? Do you know? Uh, yeah, virtually all of it. So if you go back to March 4th, it was still 1,097. Um, so in the last month and a half, we've we've cut the jail population from about 1,100 to about 700. So roughly 40% in that time period. And we've done it because I decided early on to do what I wish President Trump would have done from the beginning, which is to let public health officials guide public policy as we navigate this public health crisis. The jail medical director made very clear that we had to cut the jail population drastically so that she and her team could create social distancing in jail so that people who were pregnant and people who had other underlying medical conditions weren't exposed to COVID while incarcerated. And, um, you know, the thing about jail and prison is, and this is really important for folks to understand, it is not just about the people who are incarcerated. It is not just about the people who have committed a crime or been accused of a crime. It is about all of the people who go to work in jails and prisons every single day. And um, in the United States, you know, we have about half a million people who work as correctional officers. And we have many hundreds of thousands of more people who work as jail and prison medical staff and service providers. And those folks go home every day at the end of their shift. Um, if, if you look at New York State, for example, where my father's incarcerated, there are actually far more correctional officers and staff who have tested positive for COVID-19 than there are inmates. Wow. They are bringing the disease into the jail and then they're bringing it back home to their families. Um, it's a very dangerous situation for everybody who is in any way connected to a jail or a prison. And in the United States, that's most of us. What is happening right now in terms of arrests and prosecutions? What goes on as far as crime? So crime rates are definitely down in San Francisco and in most parts of the country. Um, People are staying inside and there's less opportunities for people to commit crime, especially property crime. And yet other areas, um, things like child abuse and domestic violence, Mm -hmm. we're very concerned about because people 
are stuck at home with abusers. It's very hard for them to get help. We haven't seen a surge in reports, but we know from the amazing work that the Victim Services Division in my office does that there are more needs for service and support for folks who we already have relationships with Yeah, have I, a history of being abused. I would wonder if domestic abuse, whether the quiet lines on reporting domestic abuse are actually not a cause for concern, right? Like the question is whether victims of domestic abuse can actually report that domestic abuse if they're in quarantine or in lockdown with abusive spouses or partners. Exactly. And so San Francisco has been really proactive about that. We've done a number of things, um, for example, allowed folks to report domestic abuse and other crime um, to 911 via text message uh, so that if people are in a home where it's not safe for them to get on a call and provide details out loud because someone who's abusing them might hear they can do it via text message. We've also partnered with Lyft and a bunch of community-based organizations that provide services to domestic violence victims to provide free Lyft rides to people who need to get out of an abusive situation and get to shelter and safety. How does that work, though? I mean, from arrests to uh, visit home visits to, you know, police coming to the, the scene of a potential crime, I mean, what are the guidelines for arrests and, and instances where police officers or law enforcement may be coming into contact with someone? You know, the chief of police and I talk uh, almost every day. We have, you know, very close communication and we're working hard to find the right balance between uh, making sure everybody is safe, making sure that we're still enforcing the laws, um, but also doing it from a public health standpoint. And we need to keep our frontline workers, our firefighters, our police officers, our sheriff's deputies, uh, our paramedics healthy. We need our frontline workers to be safe. Uh, but if someone's in an emergency, if someone's being abused, uh, our police officers are stepping up. They're going, they're doing investigations, they're making arrests. Um, and we're still filing new criminal cases every single day. And I'm assuming they're doing those investigations. They're making those reports. They're, they're filing those reports using protective equipment. Is that right? That, that's right. Um, we are prioritizing getting protective equipment and testing to our uh, first responders. And we've done a great job in San Francisco of keeping our first responders safe. Of course, we've had some who've tested positive, but given the number of people that they interact with, that they come face to face with, um, the fact that they're making arrests and putting handcuffs on people, yeah. um, every single contact is exposing folks to risk. And um, we've done a really good job staying ahead of the curve in San Francisco, uh, both for law enforcement and really across the board. What about the next stage of that um, process, which is the trials? I mean, Everything is basically on hold right now in the state of California, right? Civil and criminal trials are being held f un until what date is it? Well, it's it's kind of rolling. Um, we're not technically prohibited from doing trials. Um, we could do trials right now. But um, the Judicial Council and the Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court have issued emergency orders that dra dramatically extend the procedural timelines for doing preliminary hearings and trials. So um, I don't know of any county in the state that's done a, a criminal trial in the last month. And in San Francisco, we have not done even a preliminary hearing in the last month, but we're hoping to be able to uh, start doing that next week. And we're going to be using Zoom technology. We're going to have, to the extent possible, police officers testifying from their police departments and their stations. And we're going to have my lawyers presenting evidence and exhibits uh, from our office 
Um, and hopefully it'll just be the judge and the courtroom clerk in the courtroom. So wow. we'll maintain social distancing and also allow the wheels of justice to turn. What does the slowdown of trials mean practically for the system, though? Is that is that does that mean there's just going to be an insane backlog when, you know, you get things up and rolling, even if it's socially distant trials? It, it does, Alex, and it's something that you know we're all concerned about um, in the you know in the justice system, the the public defender, the court, uh, the district attorneys. You know, all of us are concerned about that backlog, um, and it has really serious implications for our ability to move cases forward in a way that you know respects the rights of defendants and those accused, as well as um, the rights of crime victims. So, what we're trying to do is as much court business as possible right now. And we're also trying to find ways to settle cases. Um, not every case goes to trial in San Francisco, as in most of the country. About 98% of criminal cases settled before trial. Mm. And so we're trying to continue that process of negotiating and resolving cases, even without the ability to put evidence in front of a jury. I want to get into the ethics of that, right? Like settlements, plea bargains in an age of coronavirus. I mean, I would imagine, look, the prospect of going to jail, going to prison for anybody is daunting, right? It's a scary prospect. Nobody really wants to do that. But when you when you know there is a raging pandemic that is worse in prison than it is in most other spaces in American life, that must make the negotiation process even more asymmetrical, doesn't it? I mean, the threat of that just seems so profound. There are always asymmetries in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, there's a phenomenon that we refer to as overcharging, where prosecutors will take a case that should be, say, a shoplift uh, or a shoplift with a battery on um, a store employee, and they'll charge it as a robbery. There's a huge difference in terms of the, the consequences for that different charge, right? A, a shoplift is a misdemeanor. You're looking at six months in county jail. A simple battery is a misdemeanor. You're looking at six months in county jail. A robbery is a strike, five years in prison. So you're absolutely right that COVID-19 changes and exacerbates in some ways the stakes for people. Um, and if you're offering someone credit for time served, uh, and they're in jail, there's a tremendous incentive for people to plead guilty uh, just so they can get out of jail. Right. That's always true, but it's much more true today. And that's something that you know we're aware of and we're trying to grapple with it by finding ways to safely release people um, who can safely be released. I, I kind of wonder how it changes, though, from the prosecutor standpoint, right? I mean, the prospect of someone sending someone to a place where they could contract a deadly virus has got to make prosecutors think very seriously about how hard they want to prosecute, how aggressively they want to prosecute someone, right? I don't know. Tell me what you think. It, it's No, it's a serious concern. And look, Alex, I, as a district attorney, we balance very, very difficult, uncertain cases every single day, right? Do we let someone out of jail? If so, with what conditions? Do we seek a prison sentence or a probation sentence? If probation, what kinds of terms should be attached? If prison, for how long? And the thing that keeps us awake at night is the fear that we'll let someone out of jail who will then go and commit a heinous crime. And we know that it's, in some cases, a real fear. It has happened. It will happen again. And those cases are the ones that will be on the front pages. Those cases are the ones that will uh, all too often define 
criminal justice policy. Even though they're the outliers, we do not want short-term periods of incarceration to turn into a death sentence. And that is a reality that we have to face with COVID-19. If there's a silver lining in all this, it would be that we dramatically expand uh, resources for people reentering and, and focus resources on supporting victims of crime instead of just building new jails and prisons. Um, but I really think, um, you know, we have to make the road by walking, as, as uh, I'll borrow the, the name of one of my favorite uh, organizations in New York. We have to make the road by walking. It is not a foregone conclusion. So I want to talk about how you personally have been managing this because your father, David Gilbert, is serving a prison sentence of 75 years to life. Is that right? That's right. Um, and obviously, I'm sure he's he's on your mind all the time, even more so in this moment. What's your communication with him been been like in this moment? I mean, how is he feeling and how are you feeling about him being behind bars, which is obviously not a place you want him to be in any situation, but I'm sure especially in the middle of a pandemic. Nobody wants their 75-year-old father to be in a prison cell, but it's much more stressful. It's much scarier in the context of this uh, epidemic. Many people in his prison have tested positive. People on his cell block have been evacuated with symptoms. People in the New York prison system have died of COVID. Um, and people who are younger and healthier than him have died. Um, we have a really close relationship. We talk on the phone usually once a week. We exchange letters. I visit him frequently uh, in prison. But of course, visits are canceled. And now for him to get to a phone is um, really taking his life in his own hands. He has to use a phone that's shared with hundreds of other incarcerated people. He has to, um, you know, make do without access to hygiene products. He's not allowed to have hand sanitizer, for example. Why, um, why is he, he not allowed to have hand sanitizer? Because of the alcohol content? Exactly. Most jails and prisons prohibit any alcohol or any product containing alcohol. So no access to hand sanitizer and also no access, no easy access to showers. Um, there's shared showers. He, he can't just take a shower whenever he wants. Um, the, the, the toilets that he and all the other people on his cell block use are right up against the, the, the bars on their cells. So when people flush the toilets, there's no covers on the toilets. It's, uh, you know, literally spraying, um, you know, into the air and everybody has to breathe that air. Everybody has to share the same confined space. It's exactly the opposite of what public health officials are telling us we need to be doing right now. And so I do worry about my father. Um, I do worry about the risk he takes every time he goes to make a phone call. And yet, I crave those phone calls because I want to know that he's okay. I want to hear his voice. I want to hear that he's still healthy. When he calls me now, it's often really hard for him to hear me. And it's sometimes hard for me to hear him because he's wrapping the phone in several layers of clothing before he makes phone calls. And then he hand washes the clothing in his cell after each phone call. How do you set about each day? I mean, what are you thinking through all of this? How is your thinking about, you know, the role that you play and, and, and the, the work ahead of you? How has that been molded by um, a global pandemic? It's certainly not what I expected or could have imagined when I ran for office, when I took office. Um, you know, I had a lot of work cut out for me. We are capable in San Francisco and in my office. We are capable of rising to the challenge and we're capable of doing it in a way that actually leaves us stronger uh, on the back end and that 
Um, I really believe there will be silver linings, and I really believe that we're going to be a lot stronger and a lot healthier in the long run um, because of some of the lessons we're learning, because of some of the ways in which we're finding efficiencies and creativity and common cause against a threat to all of us. Well, you have a lot of work, Chase Boudin. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me, Alex Wagner. <laughs> Uh, you know, we wish you luck. We hope you continue to to make sound decisions and, and um, you know, what is it? You will find the path by walking it, I guess. Chesa. Make the path by walking. Yeah. Make the path by You'll walking. You'll make it by walking it. Thanks That's for your right. time. Thank you, Alex. Six Feet Apart is brought to you by Sunbasket. Hey, this is Priyanka, and I have been trying to reduce the number of trips that I'm taking outside of my house in this time, as I know a bunch of you probably are too. And something that I found has been really great for that is Sunbasket. Super delicious food, and they deliver all of it straight to your door. They have great recipes and all kinds of dietary preferences, including paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, vegetarian, and more. They make it super easy and convenient with everything pre-portioned and ready to prep and cook. Um, I've actually had Sunbasket before. Um, I had a pasta dish that I remember really loving. They had like everything is pre-portioned. I was just doing it for me, so I had a bunch of leftovers, which was great. But if you are a family or have a few more people to feed, like this is great for dinner. You can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce, clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. That is 100% true. It's so fast. You underestimate how much prep time cutting and all of that takes. If you've ever watched an Instagram live with John Lovett attempting to cook, you probably realize that um, that's, a, that's a lot of what cooking is. Um, but this kind of takes that out of the equation, which is really, really nice. Each week they have a range of recipes to choose from. They have a bunch of dishes this week, including roasted salmon with miso glazed eggplant. That's going in my basket. Really simple, no gotchas. They are reinforcing strict adherence to their existing standard operating procedures and increasing sanitation frequency in their distribution centers in order to keep you, your family, and their employees all safe. It's great. Um, so right now, Sunbasket is offering $35 off your order when you go right now to sunbasket.com slash apart and enter promo code apart at checkout. That's sunbasket.com slash A-P-A-R-T and enter promo code apart at checkout for $35 off your order sunbasket.com slash apart and enter promo code. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Part. And now we'll hear directly from an inmate in our prison system, Mary Beth Hill. Hi, Mary Beth. I know our time with you is limited, so we'll get right to it. What were they communicating to you inside prison when COVID-19 first broke out? So, um, fortunately, I am in the program barracks, um, so we...
um, we go to groups every day. And so that's really when we started getting concerned is whenever they started minimizing our groups. Um, they had us distance our chairs inside the group room. And so that is whenever we started to kind of panic. But a lot of, a lot of wasn't being said at this point as far as, you know, what was happening, what was going to go on. So they weren't saying anything to you, but they were making you guys sort of stay more spaced apart. And that was your indication that something something dangerous could be happening. Right. They haven't tested any of us for it. So we really don't even know. There have been a lot of people who were sick when it first happened. But like I said, they never tested anybody for it. So we don't even know, you know. Wait, so they haven't tested anybody inside your prison? No, nobody. They've came by to do um, temperature swipes. That's all they've done. They've asked people if they were symptomatic, and they've done temperature swipes. And they did that one time. And that was whenever the pandemic first started to become, you know, like probably like in late February, um, maybe March. But um, Wait, so they just did temperature checks once? One time. That's it. Have people been showing signs of illness? So like when the virus first started like becoming really prevalent, before they stopped, they they had stopped our visitation uh, from the outside. So whenever the virus first like started like really impacting um, the justice system, like there were a lot of people who were sick and they never tested anybody for it. We've even had a girl um, since we've been locked down who was running a fever. They took her to medical and they sent her back with a face mask. This is before they ever issued us any face masks. They never quarantined her. They never isolated her. They sent her back to the alley, uh, back to the unit with us. Wow. So they're they're not testing anybody when people are sick or when they've been sick. They just give them a face mask and send them back to you guys. Right. Yes. This call is from a federal prison. What What's happening inside as far as keeping things clean or sanitized? Are Are they stepping up efforts to try and disinfect surfaces? If you know anything about a prison system, it's inmate ran, it's inmate led. Um, you know, we do all everything here as far as our own maintenance. We do our own yard work. We do our own cleaning. We everything here is inmate it's inmate led. So um, I'm very fortunate to be in a facility with some very clean women. Um, we spend every day sanitizing, overly sanitizing. Um, but that's okay, you know. Like if that's what it takes, you know, to overly sanitize everything, then that's fine. Um, but as far as anything, as far as that goes, it's all because of the inmates that um, are here. What are you using to clean? So they give us this pink cleaner. It's just, um, it's like a pink. They don't give us bleach. Of course, you know, that's like a, I guess they think that we're going to hurt somebody with it or something. I don't know, but they don't give us bleach. So we use like, a, it's just a pink disinfectant cleaner. What about protective gear? We're, we're now in a situation where everybody outside is being ordered to wear face masks. What kind of gear do they have for you guys? So the first two weeks, we, we, went, we went on lockdown on April the 1st. Um, for the first two weeks, we were not given face masks. But being that we are women and we are very ingenuitive, um, we made our own face masks. Um, a lot of people croaking stuff here. Um, you know, we can be very resourceful. Um, as far as like cutting the elastic in our bras and underwears and then creating face masks for ourselves. It wasn't until the second week that we were on lockdown when they gave us one disposable face mask for the whole week. For each person? For each person. One disposable face mask for the whole week. If it broke, that's on you. Now, the very next week, they gave us another disposable face mask. And then after that, we finally received cloth face masks after the third week of lockdown. Wow. 
And what about gloves or goggles or anything of that sort? No, nothing of the sort. I mean, we do have gloves for the cleaning orderlies, people that clean inside the facility. But as far as anything else, no, they don't give us anything else. So you're using your bra straps to create face masks. You're using cleaner that doesn't have alcohol in it to try and keep everything as hygienic as possible. Can you even be six feet away from each other? I mean, what about the social distance part of it? Is that happening at all? The only thing that they've been able to do for us is to we have two housing units here, so they've separated the two housing units where we don't have any contact with the other housing unit. But as far as maintaining six feet social distancing, there's no way possible. Um, we live in two-man cubicles, and we sleep less than three feet apart from each other, not including just to walk to the bathroom, to walk to the common area. You, you can't keep any kind of social distancing with that. They just advise us to where we do have to wear a face mask at all times, you know, but still, as far as like the physical contact, there's no way to escape each other. So Mary Beth, what's it like? Are people terrified? What's it like inside the prison? You know, it's, it's a very, um, stressful and trying time right now. You know, um, we, um, so then we got word that, you know, we were possibly going to be considered for home confinement. Some people were, um, you know, they've called people in telling them, you know, You've been considered for home confinement. Um, We've been on this quarantine and lockdown. We're going to process this paperwork, and we're going to get you guys out of here because of social distancing reasoning. Okay, then just to have people come right back and tell us the BOP has changed their guidelines, and now you no longer qualify. So it's just a very, very stressful time period. Not only um, are we not programming, because this is the programming barracks. You know, we're not receiving any kind of programming. We're not being told, you know, we try to ask as many questions as we can. You know, staff does the whole dance around. We don't really have an answer for that kind of question, no answer for it. And then now um, we're very fearful because, you know, we don't have any known cases in this prison, but we are in Illinois. And Illinois is number six on the hot spots, you know. So it's just, it's like every day, it's like not a matter of if it's going to get in here, but when. And then when, what are we going to do? You talk about the BOP, that's the the Bureau of Prisons, and a lot of people across the country have said that the guidelines that the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prisons have issued as far as early release are really confusing, and some inmates who have been released have had to go back inside. You, however, have been approved for release. Is that right? Right. I was initially, yes. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that. How did you apply and what's going on now with your release? There was no apply for it. Um, you know, so they came over, our unit team, the people who do our paperwork, as far as our reentry paperwork, had came over the speaker um, and called a series of names. Um, I was one of 25 that was called. Um, when we came into the room, um, the, the guy who was the director of reentry had let us know that we were considered, uh, the BOP had got directive from Washington, D.C., um, that these people were considered for home confinement. Um, and they told us the steps that we needed to take to do that. So we submitted our reentry plans. That was on April the 17th. There was a whole group of people who got called in on April the 3rd who still haven't even received a date yet. You know, so it's just very confusing and very, uh, it's very alarming to me because, you know, if we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, the whole point is to be processing these people out so we can maintain the social distancing. But there has been nobody who has left yet as of today. Do you think you're going to get out of prison early? Do you think they're going to get you out next month? I'm I'm being really honest. This call is from a federal prison. Um, I'm very skeptical. The women here are very skeptical. Um, 
you know, but I can honestly say that I am surrounded by a bunch of God-fearing, strong women. Um, we keep our faith high. We pray every day. You know, we have no um, more access to religious services. And so we really have come together as a unit and bonded. And we make sure that we, we take our time out every day and we just, we pray. And, you know, that's, that's all we can do, you know. Yeah. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about how you guys have banded together in all of this? I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, we're like a big group of sisters, you know, and sisters do fight. You know what I mean? And so, like, we do, we have our scruples, man, but we balance right back. And we we realize what the, the greater purpose is here. You know, like I try to tell everybody that I talk to is that people need to understand as far as the women in here and the men as well. Um, you know, we're humans. You know, we've we made some mistakes and we've got caught. But that doesn't mean that we're any less deserving, you know, of, of the fight to want to live. And I can say this, that we have honestly bonded together. We help each other out. We're there for each other emotionally. And we just try to, you know, utilize each other to make it through this. Yeah, that's that's really powerful, the idea that you're human beings and you shouldn't be denied the fight to live. Do you worry about what happens if you leave and those other women are left inside? I mean, how do you think that's going to make you feel given the stakes, you know? The, the threats facing them inside prison. You know, that's why I do these interviews and what I do. I don't do it just for myself. You know, it's for the greater good of everybody that's here. Um, most of us are mothers. A lot of them are grandmothers. Um, and, you know, I just, I know, I, I know that I am deserving and these people are deserving as well as a chance to go home, but not only just to go home alive, but to go home healthy and not have to worry about, you know, bringing something to our family Eventually, whenever we do get out, you know, that that's another concern is just trying to keep ourselves safe as well as our families whenever we come home. And is that the idea? If you go home, you're going to go home to your family? Yes. I have three children who are waiting for me. And I don't mean to get emotional. It's about to hang up. But, you know, those three kids are my life. And um, I just want to make it home to them. Well, Mary Beth, we wish you health and safety in this time of crisis. I thank you so much for for um, agreeing to talk with us and, and you know, stay strong. And um, we're all thinking about what you guys are going through um, in prison. Thanks for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Six Feet Apart. Our show is produced by Elisa Gutierrez and Lyra Smith. Lyra Smith is our story editor. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. Special thanks to Allison Falzetta, Stephen Hoffman, and Sydney Rapp. Thanks for listening, and stay safe. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.